Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... In this episode of The Microscopist, this is different, okay? This is, we're going to be joined live by the enigmatic Nobel laureate, Eric Betzik himself. Hopefully, depending on the questions, we'll get to know Eric on a more personal level, from his favorite fruits to his TV shows. I like diversity in what I eat, but I don't really care where I eat. <laughs> and it's not all been smooth sailing. And for a time, Eric was unemployed and felt as though he'd found it as a, an academic and in his industrial career. But he bounced back from that, showing us always an opportunity uh, no matter what life throws at you. Pretty much everything I've done since then is just implementing the ideas that came about during that period. And hopefully you'll also get to hear about his legendary friendship with Harold Hess, who's clearly more safety conscious than Eric. Either that or scared of Eric, we'll find out hopefully during the chat. You know, we've been tied together for many, many years. And together, how these two best mates actually built one of the world's first super resolution single molecule localization microscopes, which was actually found in Howell's living room. My canonical joke from my talks is, we could do it there instead of the garage because Harold wasn't married. This work ultimately led to Eric winning the 2014 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, which is quite an achievement for someone who claims to know very little chemistry itself. There are levels upon levels of fame, and let me just say I'm already uncomfortable with the level of fame I have. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Right, welcome everyone. Uh, so welcome to the first uh, live Microscopists podcast. Uh, so before I introduce our well, really special guest today, I'd like to welcome all of you. Uh, and thank you, actually, for coming here today. I think we had interest from at least 75 different countries looking at the stats first thing this morning. Uh, over 500 registered for the meeting itself, and it is pre-recorded, so hopefully many more will see it. Uh, including my mom, actually, and dad, who I think are actually tuning in, or hopefully tuning in. They're about as, uh, as it is technically competent as I feel sometimes. Uh, so hopefully they've got into this meeting as well. So welcome everyone. If you've not been to or seen the Microscopist podcast before, a, a really important essence of this is quite personal. It's not really going through someone's CV and talking science. This is about the person up close and personal to get to know them better. And because it's live, this gives you a unique chance to actually ask the questions yourself. So there should be a Q&A part within Zoom, please access that, pop in your questions, and if they're appropriate, we'll see them. Uh, not technical questions. You know, let's keep this uh, light, funny, uh, and let's get to know Eric in even more details. So let's start. Eric, good good morning, your side, isn't it? Good morning. It is morning, yes. Uh -huh. So I'd, actually, we were recently together uh, for the virtual launch of a, of a microscope system. And that, that was a surreal experience, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I thought you did a great job. I mean, you're the guy who had to deal with the virtual aspect of it. And uh, seeing the final product, uh, it looked like you were there. 
Yeah, well, yeah, but it was all your hard work that meant there was a product to launch to start with. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it, it, mine was the start, but Zeiss obviously put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get to the point where they are today. Yeah, I, I think that was just for the virtual launch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the product itself. <laughs> so, so let's start. Uh, actually, everyone knows you won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Uh, so I think everyone knows that, so we won't dwell too much on that. But actually, I've always wondered, once you've been awarded that, did that make a change to the way you viewed science or even just your life? How big a change did it make to you? Uh, in the way I view science, not so much. You know, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've known plenty of laureates prior to my getting a prize. I kind of know what it's about. Um, in terms of the personal change, it's unfortunately gigantic. Um, it's, and it's, it's good and bad. I mean, there are, I, I keep weighing in my head, is it overall a net plus or a net minus? And, you know, it just depends on my personal mood as to which way I feel at that day. But, um, you know, the pluses are, you know, there's lots of perks, right? Um, uh, you know, people listen to you. Um, you feel like you have some kind of stamp of approval or something, so you don't feel as insecure. Um, uh, the, uh, it, it opens doors, um, that, you know, would not necessarily be open otherwise. Um, uh, so that's all good. The, um, the, the downs are just, again, that, uh, I don't feel like I've ever been the same productive scientist that I was prior to the Nobel. The, the amount of dis distractions and so forth are just, you know overwhelming at the beginning it's really overwhelming and then you kind of make sure you say no more often and you kind of get closer to normalcy but there's no question that my life today is completely different than what it would be if i hadn't gotten the nobel and in some aspects better in some aspects worse yeah so, so i i note that you it, it's quite hard to say no and uh I, I apologize for adding another. <laughs> you had to twist my arm quite a bit to do this. So. <laughs> I've, I've never, I've never been so cheeky and asked so many times. <laughs> I, I was dumbfounded when you actually you came back and said yes uh, that final time, which is a, a yeah. big bonus. I was in a sweet spot after that Zeiss launch. You know, you kind of hit me. I had a good time then. So. <laughs> <laughs> I got very lucky then, but thank you for agreeing to it. It was sure. interesting in that conversation, you meant how it gave you uh, a, a bit more security, feel more secure in yourself. Yes. Uh, so does uh -huh. that mean, uh, I guess everyone feels moments of insecurity or doubts themselves in some way, but you know, you've had a prolific successful career, but you still struggle with that sort of thing? Oh, totally. Yeah, of course. Um, so, so there, you know, there, uh, you know, I, I, I was an abject failure up to about age 45. Okay. So I faced a lot of, you know, when I was 45, I think there's an alternative universe close to here in which I'm an unemployed, divorced, mechanical engineer living in Michigan, okay? It's just a very bizarre set of circumstances that took me to where I am today. Um, so, and insecurity, you know, I think the more you live in a bubble and the more you get comfortable in a bubble, the more you feel secure. Um, but I've had to live outside of bubbles at times. And as a result of that, um, I feel 
I'm aware that I'm in a bubble and I'm aware of how fragile the bubble is um, and that there are so many things that could change, you know, in an instant. Or like take a guy like Moss Hutchison, you know, who was brilliant microscopist. Um, I think he was going to change the world with what he had to say. And then just as he's kind of hitting his stride and the peak of it, he dies with glioblastoma. You know, you just never, never know what's coming in the future. And so carpe diem and, you know, just, just, just take the most you can out every day. So I've never lost this kind of insecurity that, and the other thing about security is great. I mean, it's nice to have a paycheck. It's nice to, to have, you know, recognition and all of that, but um, it's also a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, it's, it's uh, um, the more security you have, the less likely you are to want to leave that security and take risks, okay? The risks I've taken in life have been because I've had my back to the wall and I've been insecure and you just have to kind of throw caution to the wind. So a Nobel Prize and, you know, a good stable job, HHMI and like that, all of that has a corrosive influence on my ability to take risks. And it's just, you know, it's a battle I have in my head all the time. You know, should I quit my HHMI job? You know, I mean, it's great. The Bennies are great. The money's great. The security's great. I never have written a grant in my life, and I hope never to have to write a grant in my life. But I also feel like it's a handcuff that's been constraining me to make, to stay in an area where, frankly, I'm getting quite bored. So, you know, it's, will I have the guts at my age to, to make that change again? I don't know. So you mentioned going back to about age 45, although I think you're younger here, surely. Um, I think I was 42 in that picture, yeah. Hard to tell. So this is when I think you load loads of pictures. So I'm going to try and get as many on as possible today so you can share those pictures with us. But I think this is, this. if I'm correct, this is when you were unemployed? Yes, yes. At the age yeah. of 42 and unemployed. And I think that for a lot of people, we're thinking, oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's a big risk. And actually... Uh, I think I've got a question actually from someone here, which which chimes in perfectly uh, from Nick. Do you think that taking time off work gave you the space to think? And would you have even been able to develop Palm without that? Um, good question. And yes, absolutely. There's no question that the two periods of unemployment I had once I left Bell Labs and then once I left my dad's machine tool company were by far the most productive and um, influential times in my career. Um, they were also the most scary, but they go hand in hand, okay? Um, the, my, particularly when I left my dad's company, you know, I hadn't really done any physics for nearly a decade. Um, and, you know, almost all the knowledge had filtered out of my skull. I didn't know anything. Um, and so I actually went back to my freshman <laughs> textbooks and my freshman homework sets that I that I'd saved and, you know, eventually I became a far more complete and, and sound physicist than I was ever before by having that time. And particularly the paper that I wrote on the theory of optical lattices, you know, that's been one of my least cited papers. I think it has like 20 citations or something. It's probably one of the papers I'm most proud of in my career. It's the one time I was actually like a theoretical physicist and I felt like I had an original, elegant contribution to, to optics with that. 
Um, and, you know, both Palm and Lattice Lightsheet were basically founded during that period of unemployment when I was at our cottage, just thinking. And pretty much everything I've done since then is just implementing the ideas that came about during that period. So, yeah, it's, it's freaking scary and it's scary to not have any money coming in <laughs> and you watch your bank balance dwindle and all the rest. And you don't know, you don't know what's going to be the end. Um, you have no idea. And, you know, I remember once I first submitted the patent on the lattices, and this was like end of 2004, um, I, I, once I had the patent submitted, I decided I'm going to start to look for a job to do lattice, up lattice microscopy. And I remember applying to NIST, or actually GILA, um, and getting the rejection letter. And I think that was my lowest point <laughs> right then. It was like, nobody's going to ever give me a chance again. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just screwed. And I, you know, all of this work and I don't know what's, what I'm going to do. Right. And so, yeah, there's there, and it, that could have happened. I mean, you know, we then stumbled on Palm and then, you know, by another crazy set of circumstances. And um, so I got lucky. Yeah. Ah, uh, can't believe my virtual backgrounds have actually stopped working. Uh -oh. <laughs> of all the days for that to happen. Uh -huh. um, so I, I'm completely lost without those virtual backgrounds now. So how, how did you stumble across Palm? And there's a question actually from one of the delegates, just just uh, one of the audience that we've got yeah. here. Yeah, how did you, so, so from Shiraz, mm -hmm. that's a great wine, by the way, as well. How did you stumble across photoswitchable fluorochromes in there and that they could be used for Palm? Yeah, well, so so again, um, I've told this story, like, you know, my Nobel address and stuff, so you can see it there too. But um, the, the, it was in two phases, right? The first phase was after I left Bell and I realized based, you know, it, at Bell, I was the first person to localize single molecules to fractionable wavelengths and the first person to see them at ambient temperatures. And so I had that localization idea from that. And then Harold and I did a, a cryogenic experiment where we could separate points of exciton emission inside a quantum well by the fact that they all glowed in different colors, even though their blobs were on top of one another. And I just, once I was pushing my baby in the stroller, I combined those two ideas and had this idea about if you can just take molecules, isolate them in a multidimensional space, and then find the centers of their emission, you have super resolution. There just wasn't a really good way to do it then. So when fast forward a decade to when I was trying to get Harold to come in with me to do my optical lattice microscope, either as a company or whatever, and you know he wasn't really sold on the idea, and he said, "Well, it's your idea, and I don't want to choose somebody else's cud." So, um, uh, but he helped me to start looking for a place where somebody would give me lab space or a job in order to do it. And um, he had been, for, after he left and went in industry, um, there was uh, the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory in Tallahassee was run by an old friend of his called Greg Bobinger from Bell Labs. And Greg had been trying to recruit Harold as, as to be a scientist there. And Harold had met this guy, Mike Davidson, who was kind of an oddball guy who came up with these, had an army of undergraduates making fluorescent protein fusions. And you know the thing that got me back to doing lattice microscopy was I didn't read Chalfie's paper about GFP until 2004. 
I had left science months before Chalfie's paper came out. If I had hung on, I might have stayed in science because I found that the most, my jaw was hanging down for a week. So anyway, so we, we visited Mike because he had all these microscopes for, for testing out these fusions. And it was from Mike we heard about photoactivated fluorescent proteins, which had just come on the scene. And so another step of my trying to get a job was I was calling all my old Bell Labs contacts to see, use that network to try to get a job. And one of them was a guy named Rob Tico, <clears throat> who was now uh, you know, at NIH in his own lab. And so he invited me there to talk about the lattice microscope. But that trip was like two weeks after we visited Mike. And so when I went there, we were all filled with this palm idea, because as soon as we heard about photoactivated proteins, we say, you know that idea I did 10 years ago, we can do it. <laughs> you know, So good God, it's so simple. You know, we, we got to do this. And uh, so we had the divine fire in us at that point. And, um, and so those two weeks later, when I went to, to there, I said to Rob, you know, can you please, please, please invite Jen Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz and George Patterson to come to my talk? I really, really, really want to talk to them. So I talked lattices in the talk and I invited them to lunch and I said, we need your help. <laughs> We're two physicists. We don't know any biology. We don't have your fusions. Would you please collaborate with us on this? And Jennifer was exactly the right person to approach because Jennifer's whole career has been about being an early adopter of new technologies to reveal biology. And so it was divine intervention or something. I don't know. But you know, because yeah. Jennifer is really good at adopting new technologies. Right. Uh, there's a lot of scientists out there very uh, reluctant, risk averse, and yes. not want because it might not succeed, and then they're not going to get the publication and the next right. grant. So they're yes. very worried about it. So ha have you met that type of biologist that is very wary of adopting new technology? Have I met them? They're, they're the dominant species. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, particularly in the near field days, you know, my goal and dream with near field was to do biology with it. You know, I mean, that's what I thought, you know, would be the, you know, having, having something with the resolution of electron microscope to look at live cells. That's what I wanted to do from graduate school. Um, but, you know, when we started doing fixed cells, it was like pulling teeth to find people to work with us, you know, and it was, it was a struggle. Um, and with every new microscope, it's a struggle, you know. Um, everybody, and even, even Lattice, you know, I mean, as successful as I believe Lattice is, I'm hoping, you know, the commercial instrument from Zeiss will change this, this dynamic, but, you know, I'm just been amazed at how slow the biologists have been to kind of come on to it because it really is a step change. I mean, it does in time what Palm did in space in terms of, uh, in terms of a big step jump in performance. So. I think maybe even, I, I, I'm not going to be belittle palm or storm for a second. I think it may have a more profound effect because it's, it's a much wider, it's a much bigger market that can readily yeah. access it. Uh, oh, I think it's really important. With palm and storm, you have to engineer it slightly differently. You have to present it slightly differently. It takes a bit of effort. And a lot of biologists, they're not lazy. They just don't want to put the effort in because it's time that they're losing. Whereas actually now you can go straight from your microscope sample and put it on the, the lattice light sheet. Yeah, I, I, the the other there, there's two other differences between palm and lattice in terms of 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 biologist adoption. Okay, on the one hand, palm is easy to do. Fuck, you can do it in a living room, right? I mean, that tells you it's easy to do. The hard part of palm has nothing to do with the instrument; has everything to do 
with the sample preparation. And so there's just an amazing amount of work to do this properly in terms of developing fusions, testing the fusions to make sure they're physiological, you know, making sure they're expressed at high enough density to do the fixation without screwing up the ultrastructure. All of that is on the biologist. There's nothing that the instrument can do to help you with that. The instrument itself is easy. And as a result, you know, there's probably just as many, if not more, home-built palm systems than there are commercial systems. Yep. But, but lattice is different. It's the other way around, okay? Um, in that, you know, the, the instrumentation is complex. But once you have it down, like in the Zeiss product, it becomes easy to do. And so there's a hope that, you know, I've worked very, very hard since we started with the lattice to try to get it in the hands of people as quickly and as broadly as possible. But I know that the only way that happens in the end is commercialization, because most biologists don't have the, the chops to do it otherwise. So, yeah. So just, just changing tack a little bit, when you put... So when you got that job uh, uh, with Janelia, I don't think yeah. you had a lab open. So you worked with Harold to start with. And I believe you actually, I say, I've, I don't want to use my backgrounds because that's what just crashed it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but actually there was a famous, there was a picture of you with Harold and Harold uh, was, was stood outside your labs with not one hard hat. Yeah, but two hats on. Two yeah. hard hats and you had none. Yes. So either A, he, he's a tougher nut to crack, or you're a tougher nut to crack. <laughs> or you're very scary to work with if he's got to wear two hard hats. Well, well, well basically, I'm just, I'm just uh, put my hat on his to take the picture just for a lab. So yeah. <laughs> that was that's actually in the housing village. So once we both got jobs there right at the beginning, actually our apartments were right next to each other. So you know we've been tied together for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, moving forward from that, you actually built the first uh, system actually in his living room. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, again, the, my canonical joke from my talks is we could do it there instead of the garage because Harold wasn't married. So, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it, you know, it, it's small. It, I, I, you know, there are many ways in which I've been lucky. I mean, luck is the thing that's defined my career. Um, but, but I was lucky to latch on to Harold as a friend from the first day I walked into Bell. Um, I was lucky that when I left Bell, I told them to all go, go to hell. But when Harold left Bell, he took all his equipment with them. So all that was in the shed. So a lot of, you know, and particularly that last experiment of the quantum well we did was a lot of optics. So he had a lot of optics still that we could scrounge. Um, and then, uh, you know, if beyond what he already had, it didn't require, you know, we probably put about 50K each into building the microscope. The EMCCD was the big ouch. Um, but um, other than that, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you another story about that time to tell you how much of a bachelor Harold was, is that we had this idea of actually um, bringing in light beams from different directions with optical fibers into the back of the objective. And so we were making our own fiber collimators, you know, gluing on lenses and and, and putting epoxy on it. And to cure the epoxy, um, we said, well, let's just put it in your oven, <laughs> okay? Well, Harold had been living in that apartment for five years. And when I opened the oven to put these things in, it was clear that the oven had never been used once in five years. 
<laughs> so what's he eating? A takeout. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you some quick some quick questions today. Would yeah. you rather get a takeaway or or cook or eat out? Oh, takeaway or eat out? Me, I don't yeah. understand. So a take in, so buy your food in, or would you rather eat out at a restaurant? Uh, I, I mean, I like diversity in what I eat, but I don't really care where I eat. <laughs> I, I, I get, I get a, you know, in in fancier restaurants and like that, I get, I get annoyed if the service isn't quick. I mean, one of my defining characteristics is I always feel like there's a clock ticking, and I try to be really, really I just have so many things going on. I just try to be really, really efficient with my time. And I, I do get a little impatient uh, in restaurants, particularly fancy ones. <laughs> so do you cook at home? I do cook some at home. Um, so again, um, my wife, Naji, um, her parents live with us. And so uh, Dede does the bulk of the Chinese cooking. But um, uh, Ed, one of my little ones, he's 10. And I tend to, you know, get our fill of Chinese <laughs> after a while. <laughs> so. So then it's then it's up to me to to cook and you know I'll do fajitas or you know last night we had steak on the grill or something you know more more hearty American fare you know and then I do the cooking for that. And so to that, that answer next way what what is your favorite type? Well no what is your type, favorite type of food that that's what you're cooking. What is your favorite type of food? Oh I don't know if I have a favorite. I, the you know one of the great things about modern society is diversity, right? I mean. There's, you know, I love Indian food. I love Chinese food. I love Mediterranean food. I love food. <laughs> so, so, and it can be simple. At, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, this is another thing I was thinking like at, at about the Nobel. I was thinking as we were, you know, they have this in, in, on the, on the night that after you give the, the talks, they have this huge thing in the town hall with like a thousand people at dinner. You know, and you're seated with the royalty and like that. And I'm, and the food is just immaculately presented, right? I mean, it's like, but you know, you eat it and it's like, yeah, that's good food. <laughs> it's like, you know, a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, they could still eat like that while everybody else is eating garbage, right? And modern society has made us as 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 affluent as royalty in terms of. Our, our dining choices were, yeah, you know, yeah. back then. So, yeah. So, so, okay, so to wash it down, beer or wine? I'm not a drinker. Um, I will drink socially a little bit with other people, but uh, I mean, I get drunk incredibly fast, particularly for my body weight, nobody can believe. I will have a quarter of a beer and I will be plastered, but it's like a Delta function. It comes and goes fairly quick, but. I just don't really enjoy alcohol. I yeah, it's just not my thing. So tea yeah. or coffee? Coffee for sure. Yeah, heavy yeah. coffee drinker. Yeah, good man. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely the right way to go yeah. with it. And so, so you've had your dinner, kick back. Uh, where are you go? You're going to read a book or watch TV? Uh, kick back. There's no such thing. <laughs> my house consists yeah, okay. of. Three children, ten and two, eight and ten. It consists of a dog and a cat. It consists of my wife and two grandparents. There is no kickback. <laughs> okay. When I come home, it's you know, uh, you know, cook dinner for Ed and I if it's one of those nights. 
um, you know, check their homework, make sure they've done their homework right, go over their homework with them, play with the baby, the two-year-old who wants to do Play-Doh or, you know, uh, a puzzle or whatever, you know, play uh, tug and catch with the dog a little bit and like that. There's no time for reading a TV. <laughs> and then once my head hits the pillow, it, it's, it's, you know, one minute and I'm gone. That's it. Yeah. Okay, so, so are you a morning bird or a night owl? I am a morning person. Yeah. Morning yeah. Person. I, the only time I get to, to myself in the house is the morning period. So, yeah, I typically get up around five. Um, so. Oh, okay. That's really, I, 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 I get up early. I get up around six. Yeah. I like my exercise, so I get my exercise out of the way and yeah. all, all yeah. work. And then whenever it's good to go out and do some exercise, but five, yeah. that is a what time are you going I, to be? Um uh, 10, something like that. Yeah, At yeah. my age, I usually also have sort of a sleepless period in the middle. <laughs> and I just think about things. If I'm lucky, it's one hour. If I'm unlucky, it'll be three hours before I can get myself back to sleep. But yeah. Uh, but is that when some of the best ideas are created? Totally. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, I follow a decaying exponential of creativity during the day. So, you know, either ideas I have in the night, ideas when I'm when I first open my eyes that have been percolating in the subconscious or in the shower, right? I mean, that's where the 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 getting past the roadblocks usually happens. And uh um then I then you know. One of the things that I do now, um, uh, fairly um, uh, um, uh, uniformly, is to take a hike in the morning too. Um, so usually after I drop off the baby at daycare, there's a, a nice park um, very close to where we live, and I'll go for a hike there. And the good hikes are the ones where you kind of get out of the car, and then you know an hour and a half later you're back in the car, and you don't know. <laughs> you just had the running conversation in your head and going over things for the whole time right is that by yourself when you do those hikes oh totally yeah i mean yeah. it wouldn't be the same with other people yeah so, so how many children do you have five so five. uh i for my first marriage i have two so the oldest uh, is 27 in a uh elementary not elementary a, a, a high school teacher of math in brooklyn um my 21 year old is a financial options trader in chicago um and then the three little ones and will any follow in your footsteps do you think none have really showed any interest in science at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe mia the 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 eight-year-old um she she has potentially the leanings of a doctor but i've i've learned not to predict with kids one of the things i've learned with kids is each one of them comes out of the box wired differently. And, you know, in terms of that whole nature versus nurture thing, I am firmly in the nature camp that, you know, anything that we as adults do to our children is just tinkering around the edges from, you know, what's kind of built into their brains from the get-go. So it's a great question actually from Prakaska. So the question there is, how do they feel about you winning the Nobel Prize? And actually, I'm going to go one further because Look, I didn't realize you got the, you, you, you can correct my pronunciation. I'm useless at pronunciation. Though. Pontifical Academy of Sciences, which was awarded by Pope Francis himself. And that's a really select group of scientific advisors. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, so I don't know what the question is. So first, you had two questions. First, what are, 
what do the kids think of the Nobel? And the second is um, about the Pontifical Academy. So uh, in terms of what the kids think, um, uh, you know, at first it's like, you know, they don't really understand. I mean, the older, you know, well, I guess, uh, yeah, the oldest was at NYU then, the second was still in high school. Um, and then the young ones, Max was like five and Mia was like two. So, you know, we took the, the younger ones, to, in fact, we took all of them to Stockholm. Um, I don't know, it's, it's something that isn't really real to them because they're, they're not in the, in the field and like that. They know that, yeah, some people know dad as being sort of famous for what he does, and, but it's, it's not something that, you know, is an everyday topic of Congress. If your kids are watching this now, very famous. Well, <laughs> okay, profound no, effects on the, the oh, world of on. science. We're not in the Kardashian level here, Pete. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're not watching it. No. There are levels upon levels of fame. And let me just say, I'm already uncomfortable with the level of fame I have. So, <laughs> so what about Pope Francis and the advisory? Uh, so, yeah, so I, I turned down many, 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 many things. Um, Again, I just asked a few people if this is something I should do when I was asked, and and I did. And you know, there's only been one meeting so far because COVID killed the one for for this year um, since I've joined. Um, it, again, it's 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 meant to. They they put out um, uh, in the in the yearly meeting they'll have a topic and they want everybody to see to talk about how their particular expertise influences that topic. Um, and, um, and then every now and then they'll have another specific topic on which they want to write a report for, for the Pope. And it's similar to National Academy in that regard, where, you know, there will be, you can volunteer to work on a committee for something that then goes to, uh, to Congress or whatever to help, you know, inform them about scientific policy. So it hasn't been a big deal. Um, it just... You know, it's just one of those things that, you know, after talking to people I trust, I figured, well, okay, it doesn't look like a big time commitment. So, so I've got to ask, are you religious yourself? No, um, I, I, I'm stone cold agnostic. Okay, um, I'm, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm enough of a scientist to believe that there isn't enough evidence to completely, ref it's hard to refute something like a deity right there's but it's also hard to prove something like a deity right from a scientific sort of you know Karl popper falsification type something what i consider real science um and so uh i think the only intellectually honest point of view for someone of my beliefs is agnostic so you mentioned earlier when I met you mentioned you had no downtime or very little downtime to, to rest at home and you just started up a, a new well, actually not maybe not that new relatively new uh company icon therapeutics that's yeah. another big venture on the back of everything else that you're doing at the moment yeah that, but again that this is this is one of those things you know once you have the nobel prize most of what people want is your name more than your time so, so actually, Icon's an interesting story. That's the company that 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 we found. So I was kind of dragged into this um, by um, two of my collaborators, uh, Bob Tejan, who's at Berkeley, and Xavier Darzac, who's here too. But 
at one time at Genelia, we had what was called the Transcription Imaging Consortium. And um, we collaborated there on imaging transcription factors in live cells. And Tej himself, um, he was president of HHMI. He's a huge puller in of money at Berkeley. He's a big deal. He's, you know, on all sorts, he's, he's got fingers and thousands of pies and he's wealthy besides um, because he had a drug startup in the late nineties that hit. Um, but um, in the, um, in doing these experiments from his biochemical, he's a biochemist by trade and they had come up with this model about how transcription starts by all of these transcription factors coming to the start of a gene to create a transcription initiation complex and then recruits this, this uh, polymerase Paul, which then zips along the DNA and spits out the RNA. And they had this model in their head where you have each piece individually coming in and this stable thing forming that might last for minutes or hours. When we actually started imaging by SPT palm, the individual molecules, we realized they were only binding to any particular spot for seconds or less. It's like, well, crap. <laughs> so this was really a paradigm shift in transcription. And um, it's kind of related also to the whole concept of, um, of you know, phase condensation, um, which is now kind of a hot field inside of cells and so forth, but on a much more molecular level. Um, and so Tej and Zavi thought, well, gee, this might actually be able to be used as a drug screen because um, what, what they found was that the reason <clears throat> that molecules bind to one another, or particularly these transcription factors, is they have intrinsically disordered regions on them. And these regions act as binding agents, either the DNA or to other partners. And so, um, so and it turns out in certain diseases like Ewing sarcoma, you'll have a particular gene which is transposed um, during cell division and ends up getting a intrinsically disordered region grafted on to make it go into overdrive. And so that leads to a, a cancer for children that's lethal. Um, and so the idea is if you could find chemical compounds that modify the binding affinity of these intrinsically disordered regions, you could potentially have a drug and in fact, it's target, most all other drugs target sort of the conventional pocket lock and key type approach and, and mediating that. So it's actually then targeting all of the proteome as opposed to the 2% of the proteome that has been targeted so far. So it's, it's really kind of a very high risk. None of this is my ideas, this is their ideas. My, 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 uh, use is I know how to build microscopes. I know how to build microscopes for high throughput screening. Um, uh, and um, they provide all of the biology and the medicine and then having the shiny metal to help attract investors. Um, and so, but once it's kind of set up, I'm large, it's not a big, big strain on my time. Okay. So <clears throat> overall, over all this period, uh, there's a question actually from, oh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Phaser. How have you balanced your work with your personal life? Now, that's really important, actually. I think it's, it's really important yeah. to strike a balance somehow. Do you manage Yeah, that's that? a good question. And, and the balance is not a static one. Um, it's based on, based on opportunity and need. Okay, so 
I, in some ways, I consider myself a serial father and a serial entrepreneur. Um, in that, for example, um, uh, you know, obviously, I, I worked very, very hard when I was at Bell Labs. Um, you know, 15 hour days were the norm, you know, at least six days a week, right? Um, Harold and I just worked like crazy. Um, but when I left, I'm a house husband, right? So I'm not working at all, right? I'm trying to figure out what I'm gonna do and I focus on, you know, on, on the kid. Um, and then I started working for my dad's company and eventually it became the same thing, right? I'm hyper-focused on that. And then once I left that, it was again back to being more connected with the kids. But, you know, and then, you know, once Harold and I got the idea for Palm, it was like, I'm either in San Diego at his place or I'm in Bethesda, Jennifer's place, right? And so I'm gone again. And so it's that's rough on the kids. That's kind of, you know. So I, that's it was, what I was going to ask. Any regrets then on that side? Well, I always have regrets, right? I mean, I think it certainly contributed to the disillusion of my first marriage. Um, and, um, you know, there were rough years. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe it's just because it kind of coincided with, you know, particularly the oldest being in the teen years when I'm not around a lot. Um, but there were some, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not all fun and games all the time, I tell you. Between unemployment and between, you know, problems with raising children. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know how old your kids are, but, you know, what, are you got any teenagers yeah, yet? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got a hat trick. Uh, so 13, 17, 19. Okay, so you you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, when kids are finding themselves as teens, I think that's the hardest time. Babies are trivial compared to teenagers, you know, um, and little kids are wonderful. But when they start getting, you know, developing their own independence and stuff, um, it's it's you know it's challenging, yeah, as a parent. There's a great questioning. Actually, I can't see who it's from. I'm really sorry, but. Uh, how did you find being a house husband? I mean, it's great. I, I mean, look, I love kids. Um, I mean, you know, there are some people who told me I was nuts to get remarried and have kids when I'm near 60. And sometimes I might agree with them, but I wouldn't change it for a minute. I mean, there's, you know, there's no entertainment greater than having kids and playing with kids and hear kids see the world with new eyes. You know, every child has a if there's one instinct humans have, it's curiosity. And all of them are born with that curiosity. All of them are scientists. And they're, whether, it, whether it's like sticking a fork in the electrical socket to see what happens or whatever, right? They are always experimenting. And they're just hilarious. I mean, they, they constantly make you see things that you have, you're, you're a fish in water and you don't notice the water. And then the kids point out the water and you just laugh. So. I love it. You know, I, I could, you know, if I really got disappointed, I'd be happy being just a stay at home dad for the rest of my career. Yeah. As long as you teach them properly, because when they put that fork in the electrical socket, as long as you don't tell them that's what the big bang is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's great. Yeah. <laughs> teach them properly. That's brilliant. So I think you've also got a, a Jack Russell. I, I'm not going to try my virtual background. So I say I crashed out last time. So yes. you're Jack Russell. What have you called it? Bessel. So, so you know, Na and her work um, came up with this really clever idea 
of using two photon vessel beams. Um, going, she's, she studies the visual system in the mouse with usually two photon. And the problem with two photon, again, is it's a great optical sectioning technique, but it's too slow to get 3D volumes by doing that. Um, but oftentimes you're looking at mouse brains that have sparse expression of G-camp or something. And so there's no reason not to take that all as sort of a maximum intensity projection. So she uses Bessel beams in her work. Bessel beams were the start leading to the lattice microscope. So, uh, so and F we also have a cat, a Bengal cat. And so with both animals, when we got them, we put up a whiteboard and everybody in the family starts listing names and, and then we put a vote and Bessel had a unanimous, uh, unanimous selection. Yes. That's, a, that's a cool. I can imagine now quite a few other dogs being called Bessel. Yeah, well, it, it certainly runs in a fast and a straight line for long distances. So, yes, just like... <laughs> so looking at, so look, let's look, start looking towards the future. You said that in a way that you become less risk averse. Okay, so unshackle yourself. Oh, I would say I've, I've become uh, more risk adverse in my later years. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, I'm constrained by the golden handcuffs of HHMI. I'm constrained by the fact that I have three young children I still need to support, right? Um, yeah, it, it was my, my poor English then. So unshackle yourself. Yes, and I want to unshackle myself. What would you do? My dream is to work on space transportation. Um, I, you know, there are, I have a very negative view of the state of the world today. And what I latch on is things that are positive. And I am in freaking awe of what Elon Musk has done in his career. I worked in the auto industry for my dad. I tried to change that industry in the part that he works in. I failed miserably. Um, I know how conservative that industry is and reluctant to change. Being a Tesla changed the conversation about what the future of the automobile is, okay? After doing PayPal and then doing that, that's enough for anybody's career. But doing SpaceX as well and taking another incredibly conservative, more debunked industry and turning it on its ear as he has done and not resting on his laurels with the Falcon 9, but moving on to Starship is just amazing. Um, it, you know, there are times in which I just, I, I just say, I hate the world. I want to quit. I'm going to go, you know, live in my, uh, my second house and I'm going to become a farmer. Okay. <laughs> but every now and then there's somebody who will lift me out of that and say, damn it, that is inspirational to me. Maybe people are inspired by me. I don't know, but I'm inspired by a guy like Elon Musk and what he's done is He's the Howard Hughes of the 21st century, just no question. And so, um, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. Um, I've always, I've always followed this field. And then when the space shuttle came along, I knew it was a mistake from the beginning. Um, and it was a horrible mistake and people aren't willing to acknowledge the mistake it was. Um, but, um, and I do believe with Musk that we have to get past the great filter. If we don't become a multi-planetary species, I think our time, our days are numbered. Um, and so uh, um, I would like to contribute to that. I mean, because I'm a physicist and because I like big ideas, I wanna do something really disruptive. Look, I have 
uh, even if I quit my job, I have reasonable security. I can go out and give talks and get honorary or whatever. You know, my wife has a good job and works. You know, she's she's a professor here at the U, right? So, I mean, it's just a question of how much money is a shackle, okay? Money is a drug, okay? Salary is a drug. Um, and you have to decide when you're going to kind of go cold turkey. Um, but I would like to work towards nuclear propulsion. Um, I, I want to go back to 1938 and look at every nuclear reaction since then. I think we've become too locked into uranium and, and plutonium as sources of energy when there's many, many nuclear reactions one could potentially. So I want to do what I did in 2002 and start from ground zero and just start learning and reading and see if there's anything, there might not be, but I'm going to learn a lot if I did that. I would love to do that, but so, you know. I'm going to ask, a very quick answer, but I'm going to come back to this. So Rito actually asked, have you ever managed to take time off to visit SpaceX? No, I haven't. Um, I would like to, um, uh, I, rather than re visiting Hawthorne, I would love to go to Boca Chica <laughs> and actually watch one one of the starships launch. And I'm sure I'll have the opportunities, everybody will eventually to do that because they're going to be launching a zillion well, <laughs> if Musk gets his way. It's, it's really, uh, actually my son's really into it as well. It's, it's, so he's a computer, uh, maths computer scientist, but really loves the thing. So actually on a clear night when they're launching the rockets, usually you can get to see what, the glow, <laughs> the, the yeah, reflection yeah. as it goes over. Yeah, uh, so we yeah. do actually go out and, and we watch that as a family because we, we, we love yeah. to see that. So back to where you are. Come on, what's stopping you? Um, that uh, I have five kids. We spend a lot of money. Um, you know, we live an upper middle class lifestyle in one of the most expensive places to live in the country. Um, we'd have to cut back. So my indulging myself means, you know, I mean, we could easily do it. It's just that, you know, there would be more angst in the house about money. There'd be, you know, you know, and I'm, I'm money-wise, I'm a conservative guy. This is why I've been able to take time off, right? I was able to take time off after, after my dad's company because, and after Bell, because I'm, I'm a crazy saver. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I just like to, the purpose of money isn't, isn't to show yourself as wealth, but money equals freedom. Okay. And the more money you have, the more freedom you have up to a point beyond that, it becomes a burden. Um, so there's kind of a, a sweet spot of where you want to go. And I just have a lot of, the other thing that's still keeping me here is we're still working on the final microscope, which is taking bloody forever. Yeah, so that's, and that comes and to, I uh, have a responsibility to get that microscope done. So, so actually, someone, Diana, asked just that. Are you developing a new microscope now? Yeah, so, so you know, so again, for me, because I've been in, I think one of the most valuable times I had was working in my dad's company. Um, for, for years thereafter, I thought it was a complete waste of time because it was so orthogonal when transferred to what I'm doing. But what I've learned is that um, there is almost no utility to making new microscopes like what we make unless they can be commercialized in the end. Um, because again, biologists, I don't care, you know, so, but it's a pipeline because a let's say you have a good idea for a microscope, you patent it, whatever, 
no company is going to take the risk on that unless they know there's a market because it's probably a five, $10 million investment, right? And so you have to prove it to them there's a market. So you start doing stuff in your own lab. You start doing, you know, Janelia was great for this because it was easy to bring in outside visitors. So we've had over a hundred outside visitors use the lattice light sheet that we had. Um, and we got a lot of papers and a lot of attention and that was great. And it was a great microscope, um, but it's too small a bottleneck. And so we spent months, six months at least of our own effort, not designing the next microscope, documenting the existing microscope so other early adopters could build it themselves. And so there's probably, there's a hundred research licenses that have been signed, maybe between three eyes microscope and other, maybe 50 actually operational. And they again, start to create this, this buzz and, and desire for this microscope. And then you get, you know, a company like Zeiss to buy in on it. And then they develop the turnkey instrument. And then it's basically at that point, I was so relieved to do that launch of Zeiss because to me, this was job done. I could kind of finally say, you know, Lattice is, is a baby that's gone to college. It's out the door. My responsibility is done. Whatever they do now is, is their business. I don't have any role in that. And so I'm so, so the new microscope is basically after the Lattice, we started to go multicellular with it and ran into the aberration problems. Starting from with Na, when, when she was in my lab, we had a long program on doing adaptive optics to deal with that. We had put the adaptive optics on the lattice light sheet. We had a nice paper with that in 2018, um, but it's, you know, it was a 10, 10 foot optical table filled with hardware and nobody's gonna build that. Nobody's gonna align that. So um, uh, then we had, um, uh, so we said, just like with the same thing happened with the lattice. There was an early version of the last Jung made, and then we made the second generation that others could replicate. We started doing that with, with the lattice state with adaptive optics about two or three years ago. Um, and uh, we realized that, well, by the time you buy all of the equipment needed to do lattice AO, because it requires a tie sapphire laser for the guide star, um, you basically have all the equipment that goes into a confocal microscope, a two photon microscope, a Bessel beam microscope, an image scanning microscope, a 3D SIM microscope, a phase contrast microscope, a lattice light sheet microscope on about 10 different modes. And you say, well, you know, why have to have 10 microscopes? Why not just make them a Swiss army knife where they can all use the same hardware? So that's what's become this mosaic project. And um, it's a great microscope, great design. It's by far the most complicated thing we've ever done. We've been working like the bejesus to document everything as we go along. Sadly, we had an initial group of seven people trying to build this, <clears throat> but enough people got wind of it and wanted to do it themselves that we're up to like, I think 28 licenses now. And we still haven't really finished number one in terms of getting all the modes running. So, you know, and COVID certainly hasn't helped. So, and it's a complicated beast. So, <clears throat> we'll get there, but I have a big responsibility to get that over the hump because there's there's 28 different groups who pop down half a million bucks each in order to do this, and I owe it to them in order to get it done. So I'm going to take you back to the start when you talked about uh, it's no longer your responsibility. You've got rid of uh, Zeiss, took it on, commercialized yeah. it. 
I, I would say the other the other rewarding side of that is because it's now on a, a turnkey uh, system with software support and everything else. Yes. It also opens up the real scientific impact because it opens yes. up a much larger field of users. So actually, to an end user perspective, you know, it, it's profoundly a big step. Yes. Uh, and I did you ever think they'd get it on an invert? Just, just very quickly. Oh, of I, course. I mean, it was yeah. obvious from the beginning that this was the way to go. What was less obvious was how to get it done right. <laughs> you know? So it's optically challenging. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I find this the for the experts listening, this Dunsby approach, you know, of of the single objective inverted kind of thing is it's a very clever idea, but man, it isn't as clever or as versatile as Zeiss's solution. Zeiss's solution is really 21st century to use the freeform optics to do the correction from the bottom. I mean, that's that's a whole nother level than anything you're gonna do in an academic environment. Um, and that's the power. I mean, the thing, I've never, been, I've never been comfortable unemployed. I've never been comfortable in industry. I've never been comfortable in academia. But I see the roles that all three of those things have in the innovation pipeline to the point of impact. And so if I think there's one way in which I've been successful is by moving from one of those things to the other as I go along. You know, just working alone and coming up with the idea for optical lattices is not enough. It's just gonna be dormant. Um, going to a lab and actually demonstrating that it's useful and getting some biology is great, but it's gonna die on the vine there if nobody else can do it. And so nobody else is going to provide the level of refinement and support that a commercial company can do. And that's exactly what biologists insist upon in order to be able to use these technologies. So you have to go through the whole pipeline. So this is hopefully my first example in which, well, I guess Palm was another, but you know, again, Palm, so much was on the hands of the, of, of the sample prep, which is the biologist. And, Lattice is different. The other thing that that you know, I, I know I'm pulling the subject in my direction, but the other thing that that um, that I still don't get is um, how many biologists are still focused on structure and still focus. You know that there's a big you know, not to take anything away from Harold because he's brilliant, but his and his work with you know the FibSem, the 3D EM, is just phenomenal. But I have looked at enough, I've looked at more cells and more biological systems live in ways that nobody has ever seen before. I honestly feel like Lehman most of the time. You know, I've seen things nobody has ever seen. And I've seen enough to know that you will never understand the living cell by looking at it in a dead state. The dynamics is what's central to the cell, not the structure. The structure comes out of the dynamics. And so, you know, SPT palm will be the most important part of palm in the end, not the not the dead cell, you know, uh, looking at the structure. And lattice light sheet, I still believe that if lattice light sheet is appropriately adopted, it will have, it can transform biology. I really believe that. Um, that's not just my, that's not just my ego talking. That's my true, you know, also independent belief on what is needed to understand the cell. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to defend this point. I, I tell you what, I, one day we're going to have to get yourself and Howell to argue the toss on this because that would be a yes, that'd be great. Question. 
We hear. argue all the time. That's the best part of our dynamic. Oh, that would be so lovely to have that discussion because I, I can see exactly why you need the ultra structure as well as alive. Yeah. And maybe I think you can maybe make more profound discoveries faster in the live approach because the ultra structure is really tight. But you know, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I totally agree you need the ultra structure. But but yes, there's a much greater opportunity on the live end. I really think that it's such a step jump in terms of what we can see that, you know, I think there's so many low hanging fruit that biologists can pick with this. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I, I'm gonna to get through some questions quickly because we're up to an hour, but if we were allowed to run, are you okay for just a bit longer, Eric? I'm, I'm as here as long as you'd like. So. Brilliant, I, I, I did lose some questions. If we could get through as many as possible, I apologize to anyone who sent a question that I don't get to ask in some way, shape or form. Uh, and actually, I'm going to be selfish because I and I couldn't because I lost it at some point. I can't see what the question was from someone, but it actually it's the same question that I'd have. What's the next beyond the mosaic? What's the big thing microscopy has to do? What how, what if you were to invent the impossible microscope and nothing's impossible? Just so one day, what would that microscope do? All right. So I keep talking. There's there's two sides of this. There's what is what is needed right now and certainly doable. And then there's the holy grails, okay? To me, the holy grails, the things that would potentially pull me back into my um, would be to have protein-specific contrast, label-free, at high resolution, non-invasively, okay? I don't know how to do it, all right? Um, the, other the other holy grail would be, I don't care whether it's by fluorescence or whatever, um, but to be able to see all the molecular players involved in a biological process at the same time, not just one at a time, yeah. two at a time, three at a time. So the whole endocytic pathway, everything from clathrin, adapter proteins, RAB, you know, the whole thing to see the whole mechanism going on at once. All right. Those are the holy grails. I don't know how to get to those holy grails. Extremely narrow line width labels with orthogonal labeling of 30 things would get you there. Be chemistry, crazy nightmare to get to that, but maybe there are better ways, I don't know. In terms of the what the field needs now, um, so yeah, this is gonna piss off a lot of people. Um, my feeling is, so one of the reasons I wanna get out of microscopy is I feel, I feel that Fields of technological development go through cycles just like a farmer's field, okay? There are fertile times after you've, after you've put in the nitrogen fixing plants and you can grow your corn, but after a while you've grown enough corn and it needs sort of a regeneration period. I think the, you know, you look at something like the mosaic, there's nothing technically novel in it at all. It's a lot of engineering, but there's nothing different. Same with the lattice, it was combining two microscopes we already had in the right? It's necessary to do one like that, but it's not, you know, I feel like lattice light sheet and palm, those were step changes, right? In terms of, same thing with near field when I did near field, those were step changes, okay? Um, the rest is just, you know, throwing the ingredients together in different permutations. Um, so uh, microscopy in terms of the hardware development to me, is increasingly uninteresting because I think it needs to, you know, again, one of the things that was amazing about starting to work with Harold in 2005, when, you know, we had the idea for Palm, but at that time, I didn't even know what a fucking EMCCD camera was um, because I had never seen one. 
I used to work with an argon ion laser when I was doing near field. It was eight feet long. When I saw that you could get these diode pumps to state lasers in Vegas, I felt like Rip Van Winkle and all the filters, all like the Semrock filters and like that. The filters back then sucked in the 90s. Okay. So it was like, oh my God, this is going to be so trivial. There's all this technology. So again, you know, things, things get developed. And the beautiful thing about technology is you never know how it can be combined with all the other pieces of technology that are around to do new things. But right now, I feel like Every time there's a new tiny little thing, whether it's a new mirror or a new wrinkle, everybody in the field. <laughs> so it's not that interesting. So to me, the frontiers of my crossbeat today that are doable. One is I'm very enamored and impressed by what people have been doing with deep learning. Um, and I think there's, it's very, very dangerous. You've got to have a fucking good training set and you have to validate it. And I'm really afraid there's going to be a lot of garbage because people are not going to do the right type of validation of what they're doing. But when applied right, I can really see how that can make a big jump. Basically, you're using priors, right? I mean, Palm is kind of using a prior, right? Palm is saying, I'm prior know that this is a single molecule and not more than one, right? Priors can take you a long way. So I think that's got a lot of wheels to go. The other problem and the hard intractable problem and the thing that depresses me about still lattice light sheet and lattice AO is the data. I mean, everybody knows this, okay? I mean, with the modern, you know, I've got on my computer now, I'm trying to render a 24 terabyte data set, right? So it's with even, I got a $30,000 workstation. We have a million dollar cluster that it's hooked to and it's still, an enormous pain in the ass to deal with the data. You know, you can easily get 10 terabytes a day, no problem. You can get 20 terabytes a day. And, you know, this kind of brings up, I keep going on these tangents, but it reminded me of, of I, I watched parts of the one you did with, um, with uh, oh God, Jeff, Jeff Lichtman at Harvard. And so you had a discussion. You just rubbish saying ultrastructure's nothing. Well, no, 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 but but he had a you had an interest he had an interesting discussion at the end of that about the value of the connectome. I have always been very suspicious about the value of the connectome. It's a very complete set of information, but even if it were not, again, you've got tens of thousands of connections from every neuron, and you've got hundreds of millions of neurons. Even if there were some way of mapping all of that out. Can we ever really understand what it means? I really worry, even at the single cell level and at the sort of chemical networks, biochemical networks that exist, and how much I believe that stochastic processes are the base. I think Brownian motion is the real engine of the cell. It's not ATP and the mitochondria. That it's the organization of the cell happens because of Brownian motion and differential sticking coefficients. And it's organizes in the same way that gravity organizes galaxies and, and the universe. Um, and um, the, our ability to understand even a bacterium, I question, and a eukaryotic cell, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a challenge. So, you know, this is something that science is bumping up against is maybe we can even put it all in a computer and have an AI kind of replicate you know, what's going on. But that doesn't mean we understand it. That doesn't mean it's reducible to principles that we can really put our hands around. 
Yeah. But the, the data problem itself is just gigantic. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there's a really quick few questions because we're about seven minutes over. So very quickly, uh, really, really short. IP issues with microscopy innovations and corporate involvement. Easy. A any very quick tips for this? Oh, get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it all depends on how it, it depends on if you're doing it yourself or doing it through somebody else who's putting the bill. Right. I mean, those are two very different paths. But let me say a little bit about IP. Just, just okay. <laughs> yeah. OK. Well, it's hard for me to ever give a short answer. But anyway, so. Um, a patent is nothing more than anting in a game, a very long poker game. OK, and it's just the ante. You know, let's face it. Come on. Do you expect that the that the that the um, patent people in the U.S. Patent Office are experts on everything that you're writing and can truly vet that in a way and compare it to all the prior patents that are out there? No, they do sort of a rough check. They kind of it's kind of a pro forma thing. Reject some. You reply. You do what you can patent anything except maybe a perpetual motion machine. You can patent just about anything, but it's just the beginning, okay? Because people will piss all over your patents if they don't actually are enforceable or worthy of being enforced. So like Palm, we have Palm patents. The Palm market isn't big enough for Zeiss to go after other people. The, the attorney's fees would far exceed any value we get out of that. I, I think so, robust enough, potentially. What's that? Yeah, it's 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 so broad. There's so many users, so many infringers. It's like, eh, you know, and that's fine. So there's a. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep you on longer than you want. There was one very influential book for me called The Laser. Um, I forgot who wrote it, but it was about the story of the patenting of the laser. So there's this this. Um, so you know, most of the credit for the laser goes to Charles Towns when he was at Columbia. But there was another graduate student in another group, Gordon Gould, who actually wrote down in his notebook, had it notarized all of this before Towns was talking, um, you know, like fabric pearl mirrors, optical cavity, all of that. He, he patented that idea. He patented all the applications up to inertial laser fusion and metal cutting and all of these things as a graduate student. Um, and um, he fought those patents for years and years and years. And it went through many, many cycles. He had to bring in attorneys, other companies. His share got diluted and diluted. And ultimately, in the 1980s, he finally won a patent battle. Finally won the patent battles. Everything went his way. It wasn't worth it. He got millions and millions of dollars. But he was a bitter bastard for that entire time. He was Ahab with the whale, okay? That affected me deeply. I don't want to be Ahab with the whale with any patents I have. If I get some royalty income, hey, that's great, okay? But I'm not counting on it, and I highly recommend that anybody who thinks they're going to get rich off of a patent microscopy had better think again. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you shouldn't be developing stuff, because it's actually- No, 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 no. I mean, there's, there's value to the patent. Um, yeah. Among the other, the primary, the primary reason I patent now is so that people don't patent ideas that we've been using for 10 years, right? Um, and they think they've come up with it and like, it's like, Jesus, man. <laughs> and it's important for a company to have that, to commercialize it. To yes, just absolutely. To make so it the, the, you know, you want to have all sorts of barriers to competition. Patents are a part. 
But I'll tell you, the real barrier to competition Zeiss has now is that fucking freeform optics. It's going to be tough for anybody to come along and immediately compete with them on that front. Okay. So, so the next question uh, from Curtis is, so again, really short, because we're really out of time. Uh, what did you want to become when you were 10 years old? Astronaut. Oh, you said earlier. What about yeah. when you were 20? Astronaut. You asked that, but what about when you were 70? 70? What do you think you want to be? An astronaut. <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if, Star, if Starship got to the point where they were doing tourism and it got down to the point where I could afford it and, you know, the kids are taken care of and so if it blows up, I'm not worried. Absolutely. I, I swear if there was a one chance in three of it blowing up, I would go on it. Totally. I, I've already told my wife that, that when I die, um, if I haven't made it to space by then, and if there's enough money after all the bills, shoot my ashes to space, okay? That's where I want to go. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just going through the other question. This one's a really, it's, this is a curveball, okay? So this is a, would you say you usually have a plant-based environmentally friendly diet? A plant-based environment, what? A plant-based environmentally friendly diet, and that's from Catherine. Ah, do I? Hell no. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, just, it's a good question, though. It's fine. Yeah. No. I mean, you know. Yeah. No. I'm an omnivore. Okay. Well, I like plants. Last night. So. I like meat. <laughs> okay. You know, you had your steak last night, so so we, we know that. Yes. Anyway. Uh, and you know, what, some of the other questions are, are quite in depth, actually. So we'll we'll skip those. Okay. I, I, I think I'm going to get a, a blank on this last question. And I've asked a few different guests that I've chatted to. So do you have a favorite science joke or do you just have a favorite joke if not a science joke? No, I don't have a favorite joke. I have favorite comedians. and favorite, So, you know, I like, I like either self-deprecating humor or cynical humor. So Rodney Dangerfield, um, so one of his jokes is, uh, uh, my wife and I made a pact to only smoke after sex. The trouble, the thing that worries me is that I'm on the same pack since 1975, and she's up to three packs a day. So <laughs> <laughs> well, that type of humor. On that <laughs> note, uh, I'd like to thank the audience actually for loads of questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get through them all. It was just too many questions to actually get through all of those questions. Uh, if you like today's podcast on the microscopies, go to the YouTube website, go to the Bite Size Bio, Bio website, but there's loads of great videos with, with background, which worked <laughs> on most cases, uh, which is great to see the different pictures. You'd have seen bezel and stuff like that uh, on it. But, and subscribe to the channel, please, so you see when the latest ones come out. I hope you enjoyed it. And Eric, You've been a suit. You've been out of this world. There you are. You made it as an astronaut. And thank you very much for taking oh, thanks, time Pete. today. Been so, a great host. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. All right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com/the-microscopists.